Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Uh, good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And I am Todd DeVoe, the host of the Todd DeVoe Show. And, you know, we like to talk about public and private partnerships and, and things like this. And because at the end of the day, you know, the public side, the the you know, jurisdictions and stuff can't always handle everything on their own. I mean, if we take a look at uh, Katrina, uh, because we're kind of talking about that right now because of the new Five Days at Memorial um, a show that's on iTunes, or iTunes, on Apple TV. Uh, if you haven't seen that, check it out. I recommend it. Um, but so what is public-private partnerships? But the other side of it, too, is not just companies like Walmart that do a great job and Target, stuff like this. We also take a look at our private NGOs, um, non-government organizations and and volunteer organizations um, that come out and help as well. Today, um, I am super excited uh, to have Jake with me, who founded in 2010 Impact Northwest, a nonprofit, non-government entity providing rescue, medical, logistical support to those affected by disasters worldwide. Um, and you know, the cool part about it is, you know, Jake and I are talking, and if you look behind him on his thing, you get to see a helmet that's had some. Uh, uh, time in the trenches that can tell some stories. So, Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Todd. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your show today. Oh yeah, it's gonna be fun. So, you know, you obviously you had some uh, time in the job, um, and you decided at some point that you wanted to start this nonprofit. Let's go through that process of like, what made you uh, leave what you're doing and then start this nonprofit. Yeah, so I think as background, I, um, I'll start by saying I've got 22 years in the fire service. I actually started in 2000 here in Western Washington. Um, and in 2010, when the Haiti earthquake started, I was about 10 years into my career. I was pretty active with the technical rescue program here in our county and urban search and rescue. Um, and when the Haiti earthquake occurred, there were several of us in the community here in the fire service community who were looking for opportunities to volunteer. And we really, really struggled to find nonprofits that would uh, they recognize the value that fire service professionals and EMS professionals bring to the disaster space. Uh, so not knowing what we were getting into, we decided we would start our own nonprofit um, focused specifically on emergency responders and the experience they bring to the disaster space. Um, had we known then what we know now as far as what goes into building a nonprofit, I don't know, maybe the decision would have been different. But <laughs> at the time, it seemed like how hard can it be? So we just we hit the ground running in 2010 and we've been going and growing ever since. Yeah, it's amazing how, um, you know, you go, oh, I had this great idea. I'm going to start this organization. And it, it can it can overwhelm you for sure when, when you're going through that process. So <clears throat> now you've been doing it. Excuse me. You've been doing it since 2010. Um, what, what kind of uh, jobs have you picked up, you know, as far as like for uh, rescues and things that you've done? Yeah, sure. Uh, you mean me personally as far as my career and, and role? Oh, just as, as the organization. Oh boy, we've been real busy. So uh, we, like I said, we started out in Haiti and our initial focus was on medical response um, using EMS providers. So doing that, that first level of care, first stage of care for folks after disaster. Um, but very quickly after Haiti, within a year, we discovered there was a similar need for USAR services around the world. Um, you know, there are a lot of really fantastic government-based USAR entities that travel all over the world from the United States and from other countries. They bring some challenges with them because they're so big and because they require so much diplomacy to make happen that we discovered there was some flexibility being lost in the early response phase. And so being a bunch of fire service professionals, a lot of us with technical rescue and use our backgrounds, we decided that it made sense to expand from that 
medical piece to the USAR piece. And so in 2012, we started providing not only medical services, emergency medical services, but also this USAR response piece. Uh, and we started that with Typhoon Haiyan. Um, and since 2010, as a frame of reference, um, and since then, I should back up, our services have expanded to include logistics response services as well and community support after a disaster. But we have uh, on our books well over 30 responses, 30, I'm sorry, well over 40 responses around the world to various disasters providing rescue, medical, and logistics uh, support to communities in need. I know that you guys were part of it. Um, and the only reason I'm asking this question is because I just watched the show um, on uh... – I think it was Netflix. It was um, the 13 talking about those boys that were kept were caught in the, wow. yeah. And I thought it was interesting that um, people just kind of showed up over there. Um, there wasn't, well, at least it's the way I, I, I envisioned it by the show. I can't tell you how it was on the ground. Um, it seemed like there wasn't like a lot of control on that. Um, you know, here in the United States, obviously it would be way more controlled. I think uh, what, what is it like to be responding outside of the U S into a situation like that where is it anything goes? I mean, like what, what's this, what's the feel like down the ground? Yeah. So it really, really depends. And we've seen it at both extremes. So for example, with the country like Haiti, where the, the civil, um, the civil system, the emergency system isn't terribly strong and resilient to begin with. It can sometimes feel like a, anything goes wild, wild west response sort of situation. Um, we make a point to always work with the host government to the extent that we can. So we try to avoid that. And when we can't work with the, the national level host government, we'll oftentimes work at the direction of a municipal government. Um, so we rarely go in, I'm, I shouldn't even say rarely, we don't go in in a freelancing style. As an organization, that's really important to us that we work within the existing structures and systems. So that being said, we've worked all the way from a municipal agency in Haiti, all the way up to the national government of Nepal, who has a very systematic and structured response uh, program and plan um, and sort of everything in between. It can be really entertaining, though, when a lot of those entertaining is probably not the right word. Hopefully your audience understands what I'm saying. But um, it can be really sporty sometimes when that structure falls apart in some of these countries. And a great example of that was the Bahamas. When we responded to Hurricane Dor Dorian, uh, we were one of the we were one of two USAR teams on the entire island of Abaco. It was us in Virginia uh, on the south end. And our only point of contact with local government was a police sergeant. And so here's a gentleman who is totally overwhelmed to begin with. And here we come trying to, you know, ask questions and find work and, and that sort of stuff. And it, it's a really delicate balancing act with folks like that to make sure that we're being contributory, not drawing away from the services they're already providing. So a lot of times, one of the ways that we'll address that is, is we bring all of our own command staff. We bring all of our own incident management personnel so that we make sure that we're bringing assets to the table rather than drawing attention away from their job. Yeah, that's fantastic that you guys can have that all ancillary and, and have one one system to go. And I want to clarify something, everybody who's watching the, that show on the 13th. Yes, the government was involved and there wasn't a Wild West necessarily. But what I was talking about is all the volunteers and the news media and everything that just sort of showed up yeah. um, at the at the location, which is uh, kind of out of control if you watch the documentary, too. Um, and so, oh, go ahead. And I was going to say, one of the challenges we do run into is that not every organization takes the approach that we do to working with government entities. Um, it's very important to us because of our experience in the fire service and emergency management here in the States, we understand how that system is supposed to work. And unfortunately, not every organization does. And there are a lot of freelancing volunteer organizations that will just show up. And it creates huge challenges for organizations like ours that do things the right way and try to work within the system. Um, so it happens. It happens 
frequently. Let, let's talk about that a little bit more because that just intrigued me. Um, so if you have, you know, organizations like yours that are there that have, you know, command and control, um, you know, those other volunteer organizations out here that, that do that as well, uh, that have a structure um, and they're working well. And then you have some yahoos and then I'm not trying to be derogatory when I say that, but, you know, groups of people that are, <laughs> you know, that, that are, that are running through that are trying to do good. Right. I don't think that their hearts are in the wrong place, but maybe their actions are. Um, how, how does that, number one, how does that reflect on orga- volunteer organizations and nonprofits around, around? And the second thing is how do you, how do you keep them from not hurt, not necessarily hurt themselves because that's on them, but how do you keep them from not hurting you and the other operations that are around that are actually doing things the right way? Yeah. Uh, so it's a two part question. I'll give a two part answer. Um, you know, how it affects us in, I'm in a unique perspective because I work both government and the nonprofit sector. So I get to see it from both sides. Right. And the government side is, is very skeptical for, for good reason of, of spontaneous rescuers and spontaneous helpers. And unfortunately, what can happen a lot of times is they have a bad experience with one organization of poorly structured, poorly disciplined, whatever the case may be. And that can reflect on the entire sector of nonprofit. It's very easy to say, you guys are all clowns. We're just not going to deal with you, right? When when you're an incident commander or you're uh, a logistics uh, uh, chief, you know, and you're trying to figure out all of these competing interests, you've got all this stuff coming at you. And now you've got problems being created by some some bunch of fellows that tell you they're a nonprofit, it can be really easy to just say, you know what, we're done. We're not working with nonprofits anymore. We'll get, we got this, we'll figure it out, or we'll only work with our established partners. That can be really challenging for organizations like ours because it creates an extra, an extra time uh, requirement where we have to go and have direct conversations with those operations chiefs, those logistics chiefs, and explain why we're different. That creates a time burden for us. It creates a time burden for the incident management team and ultimately, it it, re, it reduces the ability that we have to go out and do good things for the people who need it. So that's sort of number one. Number two, how do you deal with those folks when they show up? From a government perspective, I think you have two options. The first is to say, no, you can't be here, go away. That brings a lot of challenges with it because now you have not only folks who want to help, who are present, who you're not giving something to do, right? A lot of the times, those folks are going to find something to do by going around you. And it also creates a potential from the government side, it creates potential for a PR uh, fallout, right? You've got these spontaneous folks, these people who wanna come help, why is the government telling us we can't be here? And with social media today, those messages spread like wildfire. So you can certainly take the approach of, we're gonna be the government, you can't be here, go away. To me, I've had much better luck and I've seen better experiences when government entities and responsible agencies and AHJs find something appropriate for those folks to do. Right. So those folks show up, maybe they want, maybe they tell you that what they want to do is rescue, but you say you're, you're not qualified to do rescue. What they really want is to do something. Mm-hmm. So if you can channel that energy into handing out bottles of water or cleaning streets, you're going to go a lot further with those volunteer organizations than if you just say, go away. So I would say the key really is understanding who the organizations are that you're dealing with, understanding their capabilities, and then giving them assignments appropriate to those capabilities. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, clearing the streets and cleaning the the water and and or cleaning the water um, that'd be kind of fun too. But um, handing yeah. out water, you know, those things are actually critical jobs that need to be done, right? Absolutely. And and so it's not like you're just giving them like busy work, right? I mean, so right. that's the other side of it too. I, I know well, that. Uh, just real quick, I know that um, 
and I don't, I know there's various organizations that claim this name, so I don't know which one. I'm not judging these by any means, but the Cajun Navy was really instrumental in doing some great work in Houston um, after uh, New Orleans, right? So they did some good stuff there. And then I know a group of them called themselves the Cajun Navy went to North Carolina and were turned around, you know, um, because basically North Carolina said, we don't want to want you to participate. And I know that kind of caused some heartache um, in the volunteers, uh, uh, NGO groups, um, you know, so how do you, step in and work with with governments like how do you get called to the game yeah well i will i will take a, a quick tangent on that last uh, last conversation topic is the cajun navy they're a fantastic example of organizations sharing similar names similar backgrounds and seeing some organizations really damaged by the the actions of others uh, we work very closely with one of the cajun navy outfits uh, there are a 501c3 called cajun navy relief They've done things the right way. They've gone through incident management training. They've gone through rescue training. They work very hard to integrate themselves into the system. But the fact that their boats say Cajun Navy on the side of them, it creates roadblocks because of other people that show up and say, we're the Cajun Navy. And they're, they're clowns. You know, a lot of these, some of these groups, hopefully we can edit that little bit, a little bit there, but some <laughs> of these groups are made up of people that have no place in the emergency response setting, none at all. And Unfortunately, though, that creates, that reflects really poorly on, on the groups that are competent and do belong in that place. Right. In the Cajun Navy that we've seen, that we work with, the CNR, there's no way Louisiana could do the work they do without these guys, right? Because they're the ones out in the boats doing the grabs, doing the recoveries. So it's just a great example of that issue. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your follow-on question. No, I was just saying, like, like, <clears throat> like, how how do you get called to the game? How how do you, Absolutely. as an organization? Because I know you're right. Like, there's, and that's I didn't know what what's the that's why I was kind of being broad brushed on that. Is I knew that there was a Cajun Navy that was legit, and then there was other people that called themselves that, but had nothing to do with them. Um, you know, how do you know who's right, and how do you, as an organization, get yourself get called to the game? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, as a as an organization, it's our policy that we don't self deploy. We don't just show up at disasters and, and say, do you need help? We will only respond with a request from a government entity having jurisdiction. Sometimes that's a national government. Sometimes it can be a municipal government or a state or regional, or we'll respond at the request of nonprofits that have a presence in the area and have an established relationship. So we spend a lot of our time between disaster deployments, working with organizations and vetting organizations to make sure that they're the legitimate players they say they are. So we know that the Cajun Navy organization that we work with, CNR, has a relationship with, with Louisiana's GOSEP, their version of uh, EMD or DE now. And so we know that they're going to be engaged and work that way. And so we partner with them. They are our representatives on the ground. They're the host agency, if you will. And we're just providing services to bolster they, their capabilities. Domestically, that's how it works a lot. Um, we've got some good relationships with DEMs here in the Pacific Northwest because this is our hometown, you know, our backyard. Um, and through CNR, we've got some good relationships in the Southeast. Um, internationally, it tends to be more on the national government level. And we're a member organization of, of INSERAG, which is the Internet, International Search and Rescue Advisory Group. And that gives us access to the United Nations deployment and dispatch system. So international deployments is a little bit different. We work through the United Nations and through that program. And domestically, we'll work a lot with uh, local host governments and other entities. Can you get to places where the United States government can't get to because of the fact that you're working with the UN? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge advantage we have over the federal assets is that we don't we don't get bogged down in bureaucracy and politics. 
And I fully understand the U.S.'s diplomatic aims and why that's important. Uh, but we're we're free of that, um, and we're also free of the bureaucracy that allows us to respond much faster. Uh, we call ourselves an expeditionary task force rather than a a true urban search and rescue task force. And the reason for that is that our goal is to be on the ground within 48 hours of a disaster, and we're out in 14 days. Our our goal and where we really live is in that in between period where uh, local resources are totally overwhelmed, but the big kids haven't had a chance to get mobilized and get in the country yet. Let's talk about logistics for a second. Um, Absolutely. How do you move that your group like across? I mean, I, unless you own your own C one thirty somewhere or something like that. Like, how do you how do you organize that? It's very complex, uh, or it can be very complex. So we have an invaluable partner from the nonprofit space called Airlink. And Airlink is a clearinghouse organization. They work very closely with airlines to get nonprofit responders and NGO responders into disaster spaces. So when there's a large-scale disaster, and you hear that Alaska Airlines has donated a million miles, and I use Alaska because they've been a very valuable partner of ours for years. So I can give a little subtle plug, I will. Um, but uh, so when you hear they donate a million miles, a lot, a lot of times that's through Airlink. They go to Airlink, they say, here's a million miles, do with it what you will. We as a vetted organization call Airlink and they can get us oftentimes on commercial flights very, very quickly because of those relationships. Uh, so all of our movement is done commercially. Um, that Airlink organization also has good relationships with a lot of cargo and freight movers, so we can move equipment that way. Um, for the rescue mission specifically though, all of our equipment is, is person packed uh, and it all flies with us commercially. So whether it's our dogs, our tools, our search cameras, that all goes with us commercially. Yeah, I guess, you know, and as far as like flights go, I, I think I'd rather have a C-17 than a C-130 just to kind of personal. Just, oh, sure. Just... <laughs> well, and I tell you what, if any of your listeners had a lead, have a lead on how we can get a spot on a C-17 out of McCord whenever we need it, I'm all ears. That would definitely make my job a lot easier. I tell you, as a, as a guy who was in the Navy and, uh, you know, would serve with the Marines as a corpsman, we flew around in C-130s and I was like, okay, this is type but okay and then uh i got to go into a c-17 one time like what the hey come on man air force you know give it up a little bit people it's a whole different gig isn't it (laughs) it's for sure yeah and logistics i mean you kind of hit the nail on the head it's sort of the it's something we don't talk near enough about i've really being in this role has really made it clear to me how essential logistics is and i so appreciate logs specialists so much more than i used to um I heard a great saying a while ago, you know, you might be the pride, but without logs, the pride don't ride. Right. So I really like that. Well, you know, I, I know we're going to get off a little tangent here uh, on logistics because, um, I mean, think about World War II, right? Like we, we won the Battle of the Bulge basically because the Germans' logistic lines broke, right? And that was what really made the difference between um, our victory and, and, the, and the loss. Um, and, you know, everything else that you do. Back to the whole where you have people, volunteers that are uh, helping out with water and uh, cleaning roads. It's, those are jobs that need to get done, and, and logistics is, is key. So those logistics guys out there, more power to you. Next beer's yeah. on me. You know, They're my heroes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you guys are out there. You're doing it. You're, you're moving stuff around. You get down to the ground for the first time. Um, how do you – so you're, you're playing lands. You get off. You deplane, and you get your stuff, and then what? So then it depending on uh, if it's an international um, international deployment, a lot of times we'll check in through the UN's uh, reception and departure center if it's already established. Now, a lot of times, though, we're one of the first teams on the ground, so that RDC might not be in place. Sometimes we may help set up that RDC as one of the first teams on the ground. 
Um, but if that's not happening, what we'll do is we'll interface directly with local government or local authorities. Uh, again, being one of the first entities on the ground, we're usually one of the first ones to knock on their door. Um, we explain who we are, right? We tell them how we got here and we start asking for work. Um, and it's usually pretty quick that we get engaged in that system um, with either local government or through Instarog. Um, because once Instarog is on, on the ground and established, obviously then we fold into their into their overarching incident management approach and rescue approach. Um, but sometimes it can be really, really fun. Uh, I keep, I'm using the wrong terms. Again, I hope no, you're using the right understand. terms. This is, we're um, all professionals. It, it can be really entertaining to try and work through that system sometimes, right? You may have language barriers. There's different ways of doing business. You're trying to explain your capabilities in a way that makes sense where you're operating. You know, I might be operating from an Instarog perspective and say, well, we're, we're, a, we're classified as a light team with medium capabilities. That may mean something entirely different to the Indonesian government. So even, even if you don't have language barriers, there's language barriers. Um, so a lot of that can be a little challenging to work through. Fortunately, we've been around long enough now that we've got a pretty established relationship. And a lot of the entities we work with we're, we're known to. So that speeds that conversation up. But um, usually we're on the ground and at work within six to eight hours of, of hitting the ground. All right. So if somebody wants to get involved with you, right, whether through working or helping or whatever, how, how do they, what's the process to, to become a, a part of your organization? Yeah, so we've got a couple of tracks, volunteer and um, and uh, and paid, obviously. The volunteer track is the most common. We've got a really, really small staff, super, super small. Like I could maybe take an intern, but that's about all I could afford at this point. Um, so very heavily volunteer driven. Um, we do a recruiting period every two years. We're actually coming up on a recruiting period right now. One of the unique things about Impact is we don't take volunteers off the street. Uh, you've got to come in through our volunteer uh, recruiting process. And then we actually do a, a training and in-doc period. It's about four months long. It's two four-day courses. Uh, everybody gets qualified at the operations level in both rope and uh, structural collapse. So regardless if you're a, a logistician or a rescuer, you go through that training. Um, and that's both so that our people working on the back end and the support roles understand what we do, but also so that everybody in the field can fill a role. So that if we land and we don't need a logistics provider, we need somebody to swing a hammer and do shoring, they at least have some conceptual understanding of that. Um, so we do that training period, and then it usually takes about four months for a new volunteer to get rostered into the organization and ready to deploy. Uh, so we'll be doing a recruiting drive here starting in November, I believe, and then that's going to be going through um, through January, and we'll be starting our next in-doc class probably in the spring. Um, how, do, how do people who want to get involved find you? Oh, I'm so sorry. That was your question, wasn't it? Uh, you can find us on the web at impactnorthwest.org. And impact is spelled with an E. Northwest is spelled out. We're also on uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, all the social medias uh, under Impact NW. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, everybody who's driving or their pencil's not sharp, <clears throat> that information is going to be in the show notes as well. So you can go ahead and just go down there and, and uh, click on those and, and find them. Um, you know, so... You know, when you start doing emergency management stuff, we start doing the disaster response. We start doing rescue. Um, every once in a while, you start reading books. What kind of what book are you reading right now? Or what do you recommend for people who, who are looking to get involved in this type of stuff? Yeah, I've got two books right now that I'm reading. And I don't know that they're great for folks getting into emergency management necessarily, but they'd be great for leaders within emergency management. Uh, and the first one is The Culture Code. That's one that I have read three or four times now. And it is a, just a fantastic leadership book about building good culture within an organization, building just culture that allows the organization to make decisions without the direct input of, 
of the leader all the time, right? And really building people up to do what they're good at. The other one is a book called Taking Off the Cape. I'm sorry, Taking the Cape Off. Um, and it's uh, it's written by a fire chief out of Illinois who struggled with a lot of personal family um, mental illness and personal family grief and crisis and how he found his way through that to continue being a good leader for his organization and being present for his people through his personal crises. Um, I am fascinated by behavioral health and mental health and how it affects our responders. Um, that's a whole another topic we could talk about, about for another hour. Um, but uh, I found that book really, really insightful and really gave me a lot of good sort of on the ground perspective. Yeah, I, I know we can talk about that forever, but I, I'm going to ask you this one, one quick question because you know, I, I started in the services in, in um, 88, right? And back then it was like, suck it up, right? If you yeah. can't take it, get out. Um, we really, and rightfully so, have changed that that attitude over the years. And I think that's saved a lot of people's lives. Um, are we doing enough um, for mental health in the, in the um, emergency services? I think we're getting there. I don't think we're doing enough yet. Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do culturally. Um, I think institutionally, we're getting pretty close, but culturally, I think we still got a lot of work to do around destigmatizing um, mental illness and making sure that people understand that it is a physical illness like any other physical illness. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is not something to avoid treatment for. Um, this is this is an illness affecting our personnel, just like if they contract cancer on the job or they, they hurt their back on the job. And we need to treat it that way. We need to destigmatize it. And we need to allow people to speak about their health care needs. Yeah, I, I've shared the story before, but um, when we went through an issue at our on our job, we had a really massive, we had a mass shooting that occurred, and uh, we were forced to go through through counseling. And um, one of the peer counselors was talking about the concept of the pebbles in the backpack. So it's not that first call that you go on, um, you know, it's that, uh, you know, 25th, 35th, 100th. And each of us, you know, witnessed that, that horrific event in different lights, right? You know, so... Um, I never had an issue running on baby calls till I had a baby, <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, so we change those things. So I think that's important for us to all understand and that we support each other when um, they're going through uh, that, that crisis and, and let's stop it before it becomes a mental health issue. I think that's what we need to be doing. You know, I'm, I'm on my soapbox a little bit on, on this one myself. Hey, we're coming here close to the end, Jake. I just want to let everybody know. So, you know, if there's one thing that you could do to make things better, right in the in the response and, and emergency management world um you know if you could snap your finger and make it occur what would it be what would make things better for us i think you know germane to this conversation specifically i would say emergency managers could do a much better job engaging the nonprofit community before disasters there are a lot of assets and resources available to emergency managers that i think a lot of them don't even recognize exist you know i I imagine if you told most emergency managers that there's a nonprofit urban search and rescue task force, it would probably blow their minds, right? That's not a thing they're familiar with. And so we struggle sometimes to convince people that we're active players, right? But then when the disaster occurs, you need all the help you can get. So I would say if you can engage those, those resources, those non-governmental resources, nonprofit, but also private sector before the disaster, not only in what you can do to serve them, but what they can do to serve you, I think you'd be miles ahead when your disaster does come. Is there a clearinghouse of some sort where local, like, I mean, obviously you guys are in the Northwest, but, you know, if you're in, uh, you know, Oklahoma or Maine, is there a place you can take a look at that you have uh, nonprofits or organizations like yours that are close by? 
there's not a great resource. You know, obviously the VOAD network exists. The VOAD network is sort of the, the foundation of this. Um, I have to be very careful because I know you've got a lot of VOAD fans in your listener base, so I'll keep some of my opinions to myself, but it, it's a program that needs a lot of improvement. Um, it's not the way it's structured right now. I don't think it's an effective tool for most emergency managers to be able to find those folks. We've really struggled with our local VOAD to even get our name on their website. So um, I don't think it's the best resource. So unfortunately, no, there's not a good one-stop shop. I would say any of your listeners that are emergency managers, though, that want to reach out to me directly, either via email, social media, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. Um, we can talk both about how or our organization could help you in your future disasters, but also network you with other nonprofits that we're familiar with and that we might be able to steer you in, in some directions. Jake, thank you so much, for because that's critical, because I... I, I... I mean, we know the big ones, right? You know, the Red Cross and the Team Rubicons and your organization, you know, Impact Northwest and, and groups that have been around for a little bit doing some stuff. But there's there's a lot of great small organizations that are out there that uh, just get overlooked. And I think you're absolutely right that we need to, the co-eds and the VOADs need to be um, um, overhauled. Um, and I'll tell you a quick story. There's an organization that's here in Orange County. Um, they're they're faith-based, uh, but they have mobile kitchens. And they'll, they'll come and feed everybody. And we forget about them all the time. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, you have those resources available to you, you know? And, and there's a lot of crossover where the existing nonprofits, you know, we have one here that's a social services agency. They're a huge part of our disaster response plan because they have a lot of the capabilities built in, whether it's psychological first aid, whether it's food resources through their food bank program. You know, those are entities that a lot of times get forgotten about in the mix. Uh, they can be really, really valuable partners to you when a disaster happens. Um, and not only am I happy to talk to people about our program and other entities, but if any of your emergency manager audience has questions about how to work with nonprofits more effectively, I'd be happy to have that conversation too. I'm really passionate about this space. I really believe in it. And whatever we can do as an organization or I can do as an individual to improve people's ability to save lives and reduce suffering, I'm all in. So I welcome people giving me a call we can figure stuff out together and I can, I can help in whatever way I can help. Absolutely. Jake, we're here at the end of our, uh, of the show. We could talk about this forever. I have to have you come back on and talk more about nonprofits and nonprofit management and stuff like that. I think that'd be awesome. I'd love to. I'd love to. All right. Thank Jake. Jake, thank you so much. Hey everybody. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. And I think this is a really important conversation to have when we discuss how to manage as a, from emergency management and government side, nonprofits and, and organizations coming in to the disaster zone. But on the other side of it too, as Jake mentioned here at the end, this is how do we reach out prior to, and, and not just rely upon the VOAD, VOAD as a group, but how do we find and really recruit other nonprofit organizations that are out there that can do great work um, due to us before the disaster occurs? Well, everybody, again, thank you so much for listening. And, and don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast player. And also, give us a five-star rating if you could. And I hope to see you. And, hey, also, look at, check out the Emergency Management Network, our newsletter that we have. Um, there's a lot of great work over there. Uh, Kelly McKinney has a great piece um, um, on uh, the, the anniversary of Hurricane Andrew and uh, what that means for us um, in the response to the emergency management world. So until next time, everybody, please stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>